Welcome all uh, to this special lecture, uh, which is sponsored by the Asian Studies Center, the Darendorf Program for the Study of Freedom, the Middle East Center, and the North American Studies Program at St. Anthony's College. I have the onerous, because in fact completely unnecessary task of introducing Charles Taylor, uh, who was after all both a student here and Chichal Professor of Social and Political Theory. He is, as you know, a very distinguished philosopher as also a public figure, a winner of the Kyoto and Templeton Prizes, among others, but also active in Canada's NDP party and uh, one member of the Bouchard-Taylor Commission uh, in Quebec, about which I imagine he'll be speaking to us today. You will all know that Charles Taylor has defined some of the crucial debates of our times in his work, whether it is that on multiculturalism or more recently on secularism or secularity by way of social imaginaries and indeed the book that first introduced him to me, uh, Hegel. And I would like to pretend that his work since that uh, famous book, more than one book in fact, uh, has moved in and out of various Hegelian themes and transformed them in the process. It's one of the few ways that I can um, bring the sheer range and diversity of his work together. Uh, and what better way, what more capacious uh, way to do so than by reference to his early work on Hegel. Charles Taylor will be speaking uh, today on religion as a motive for exclusion in contemporary Western democracies. Please join me in welcoming. Well, thank you very much, Faisal, uh, for that great, very generous introduction, and to Sanatni for this opportunity to discuss some questions with you, which I'm still very uncertain about, and uh, about these issues of exclusion and religion as a talk about exclusion. Well, because I want to argue exclusion is a feature that menaces all democracies. There's a kind of standing dilemma in democracies as societies that really need some tighter form of cohesion than other kinds of societies. That is a sense on the part of everybody that they belong to the same society. And one needs it in many societies because the society needs a certain sense of solidarity. For instance, in a, in a democracy, there's bound to be some degree of distribution, and if you have a more left-leaning government, there'll be a rather higher degree of distribution of income, distribution of, of resources. And for that, people to accept that, we're in a democracy, for people to accept that, you need a strong sense of solidarity and cohesion in that sense. And then all societies require some kind of like sacrifice in some general sense, if it's only just paying your taxes. And again, in a democracy where you don't want to have to do that by sending <clears throat> guns around to people's houses and so on, again, you need some sense of strong cohesion in order for that to go ahead. And in the third dimension, I think perhaps most important of all, but not talked about as much, you need trust. 
because the, in a democracy, the whole population is meant to function as a deliberative community. We're deliberating together what we're going to do and so on. And the, the sense has to be that when people are deliberating about the common good, they're thinking about all of us. I mean, if, if you get a situation as recurs very often in Canada, this is why it comes to one's mind, where part of the population thinks, well, they're really thinking about them, not about us, when they talk about the common good. That's a very common feeling among people in Quebec who support independence for, for Quebec. To the extent that that trust disappears, then the, the whole polity, the unity of the polity, is in danger. So you need this very strong sense of cohesion. But precisely what gives that cohesion, and it can be different things, it very often is ethnic unity, or uh, the unity around certain principles in a historical project to realize those principles, as the United States was at its origin, as France was at its origin, or some kind of mixture of the two. I mean, ethnic, cum, some kind of principles, right? All of these can be the basis of exclusion. You can have exclusion because certain people don't belong to the right uh, <coughs> ethnic group or haven't had the right history or don't speak the right language. Or you can have it on, if you like, ethical grounds. A very good work by Jeff Alexander in the Civic Code, I mean the Civic Civil Code, where he makes this point that there is always in democracies, and if you like, the side of the of the common identity which concerns principles and uh, democracy and rights and so on, there's an ethic uh, attached to that, right? The ethic of being a good citizen. And that too can be the origin point of exclusion if some group of people are not thought to be living up to the ethnic citizenship. Just think of um, Mitt Romney's unfortunate or if you were on Obama's side, fortunate remark about the 47% in the last American election. <clears throat> the implication being that some of us are really in there pulling the wagon and others are sitting in the back being drawn by the wagon. They're just passengers, right? The ethic of citizenship is being, in that view, not lived up to, right? And then these, the point is that, and then of course there are more utilitarian People can worry about immigrants taking our jobs, right? There are all sorts of reasons why coming out of the very nature of what draws people together that you can find grounds, pretexts to exclude. Now, what very often happens, in fact, on the ground is that some malaise arises <coughs> about some group very often of recent origin in the country, but, it, but it, it can also be a long-standing one. But at the moment, in a lot of Western democracies, one of the great, if you like, our targets of discrimination are recent immigrants. And that's why in our, I thought think that our case might cast light on the general case, our case in, in, uh, in Quebec. So there is this sense of malaise and in the debate, it eventually gets coded in one form or another. Right? It might get coded in the form they're stealing our jobs. It might get coded in the form they can't live up to our principles. 
it might get coded in the form, well, they're just not us. I mean, they're very, very different. But the emotion that is, that is appealing to all these kinds of exclusionary policies are appealing to is originally an emotion of discomfort. And you, know, you could rationalize it or, or it, as it were, articulate it in all of these dimensions. Now, what I want to look at is the case of Quebec, and which I think is, first of all, has some purely idiosyncratic features, but has also features that I think are of more general interest to people in Western Europe, in Northwestern <coughs> Atlantic, and so on, Northwestern part of the, the world. And what I'm not sure about is exactly what is in each of these categories. So I'm going to give some description of the situation in Quebec, what we've just been through, and I'm going to then offer some wild conjectures about what of this actually travels, can actually illuminate other parts of the world and what perhaps is, uh, is particular to us, but I'm hoping that you will <laughs> react to that afterwards and set me right. So it's going to be about the Quebec case. And my, my reason is I think there is some degree of, of, um, of universal relevance, but I'm not quite sure how much. All right, now, so I talked about coding the sense of dissatisfaction in one of these dimensions, religious difference, cultural difference, <coughs> historical difference, ethical difference, and, and so on. But this is just a general categorization. There are ways in which the debate gets sharpened by being taken up in a certain form. And the way it was taken up in the Quebec case I'm talking about, I'm not going to describe very quickly what happened in the last really almost a year in Quebec. The minority Parti Québécois government, a government of the Independentist Party in Quebec, looking for a majority, put forward a proposal that it called the Charte de la Laïcité, first the Charter of Secularism. Then, interestingly enough and significantly enough, the name got somehow changed in the course of the debate. The Charte des Valeurs Québécoises, the Charter of Quebec Values, and then it flipped back and but we moved between these two descriptions, <coughs> secularism and Quebec values. And the idea was to win a majority on this, <coughs> and it looked as though for a while they were going to, to do that. And the reason why they would have perhaps done that if they hadn't made fortunate, catastrophic mistake, fortunate for us, catastrophic mistake in the course of the election campaign was that that was a way of appealing to a genuine malaise that people felt in Quebec about recent arrivals, right? They coded it in that form. And the coding word was laïcité. That is, the, it's, you know, as you know, these are not, secularism is not an exact translation, but they're kind of more or less uh, functionally equivalent in their different languages. So what was going on here? Well, first of all, I want to show that this charter and it's the support for it very strongly correlates with much more general malaise felt in Quebec and there's some polls on, about immigrants. Right? There are some polls on this um, which are really very interesting. 
we, Quebec receives something like 55,000 immigrants, about almost 8 million population society. It receives about 50 to 55,000 immigrants a year. And these mainly concentrate, as you would imagine, in Montreal. But their presence can cause anxiety elsewhere. I mean, the, the people say, I went to Montreal, and je me sens plus chez moi. I don't feel <laughs> that I'm at home in Quebec. It's so different. What's going on? Are they taking over Montreal? And so on. So it's a fear of the, uh, a fear expressed this way. Something very strange is happening. New ways of living, new ways of being, which are going to change us. And, stop us from being the same as we've been before. Now this is something particularly resonant, a fear particularly resonant in Quebec, as you know. This is a small minority in North America, started off as a minuscule group when the <coughs> everybody sailed back to France after Wolf's victory and the, on the plains of Abraham, and somehow it's managed to survive as a French-speaking community. So the sense of having to fight for survival and it's always in danger is very much there. So it's understandable that you can, you can create. If you want to create this kind of fear, when you have somebody very different coming on board, you can create this kind of fear. And a few years ago, it began to be created, began to arise around issues that more or less dramatized that there were people who were very different in their religious and other ways of being via various cases of reasonable accommodation, right, where people of religious minorities got demanded and got asked and got the right to do something different from others in their court cases. And there were very few court cases, but they were really dramatized, particularly by, by this one very major corporation that owns roughly half the Quebec media. Its nearest spiritual affinity is to Murdoch or Fox News, if I can put it this way. This sounds like very harsh words, but I feel very harsh about this gang. And <clears throat> so they played this up, and they actually, as we showed in our commission report, they actually invented, or they you know, more or less touched up various cases to make them look even more dramatic in a couple of cases that they publicized they invented it entirely. So there was a head of steam building up about this kind of fear. I want to give you just a couple of recent poll results to show the high correlation between feeling this kind of fear and supporting the charter that was presented. For instance, um, uh, if you ask people in Quebec, the people who had this and made this poll, asked people in Quebec, do you think the number of immigrants per year is too much or too little, etc.? Well, 50% of the whole population think, thought then that it was too much. But francophones, 59%. In France, actually, because 70% think there are too many immigrants, which may, be, may fit with your intuitions about present day France. Then, there was another poll that more or less was testing for the idea of what, what would make immigrants acceptable. Are you looking for a total assimilation? And that turned out to be the case. The immigrants should set their own culture aside and adopt our culture. Met the Côté d'Autre Culture on 
think that. And again, 79% francophone, 47% others. See, the norm is really, for those people, is really assimilation. Um, another poll, this is all showing the Malays. The immigration population weakens the unity. Weakens Quebec unity. 57% francophones, 19% non-francophones. Partisans of the Charter, 62% think that the immigrants weaken our unity. In France, by comparison, 62% agree that on ne se sent pas chez soi comme avant. We don't feel at home here. For the Charter in all Quebec, 51% for, 40 against, but among Francophones, 61% to 29. And as you'd also expect, support is greater outside Montreal, where people don't actually often meet immigrants. So the point I want to make there is that there is a very high correlation between the general malaise and support for the, for the Charter. Now, now this, this, the aim of the government was to channel this malaise, or say, we'll re respond to what worries you in this malaise, by this concept of secularism, of laicite. So this is what I mean by codifying the problem. And this is, so the problem was thought of in terms of a danger of a certain kind of religion, and from a certain kind of religion, and the aim of the exercise was to restrict that kind of, or restrict the behavioral expression, anyway, of that kind of, of religion. Now, this type of codification, why did it work? I mean, in spite of a lot of the rest of us saying that's not the problem, <laughs> why did this work so well, anyway, for a while? Incidentally, I have hopes that in the future it won't work so well, but we can go into that later. But why was it working so well, plainly, over the, over the winter? Well, because we now have to take up some more factors. One factor is the international scene, the geopolitical scene. If you look at this country, about 25, 30 years ago, if people asked what were the main problems of cohesion or dangers of exclusion, people would have said race was the dimension. There was a lot of talk about race relations. There was a flip over, which in this country's case perhaps started, people will tell me if I'm wrong, I may be totally wrong on this, but it coincided perhaps with the, with the Salman Rushdie case, with the Fatwa, with um, the Bradford Muslims burning the book, and so on. So you got a lot of people, in the immigrant communities anyway, feeling that what they were excluded as was not color, so, but uh, uh, something to do with religion. And then, of course, that connects up to the whole geopolitical situation, <clears throat> Islamism, yeah, as a force and so on, which has really transformed the way a lot of people see, uh, code their own malaise. Even the same malaise that they had before begin to be coded. This is the problem. This is what's making, making uh, trouble. And so you got, uh, on one hand, people thought what's really terrible here is that we have people coming in who are extremists in some sense, 
Instead, it's a French word that is not the same, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, where English speak of fundamentalism or extremism. Antigrisim is an expression which I can describe the history of. It's very interesting, but let's leave that aside. But that's the expression is used. And this extremism shades over in people's minds and not very clear where the boundary is into potential violent action, right? So there's a fear of religious, let, let's say, extremism, which is there. And then another very important theme, and one of the Quebec values that was touted, was male-female equality, equality between men and women. It being perceived that some of these strange religions, and particularly Islam, the, the, the practice was to treat women very badly, even violently, you know, Boko Haram, recent thing, will certainly feed that that impression, and that this, the presence of minority from this kind of religion was a danger for us, right? So you have the discomfort begins to get channeled into not simply I feel uncomfortable, but there is an act of danger, a danger to some of our key principles like male-female equality, and a, a danger even to our peace, order, and good government, to quote a famous phrase from the Canadian Constitution. So you can see that the, the, the codification was very strong. Now the notion of secularism, of laicite, that was adopted here was the one that would make sense of the idea that religion is a danger. Right? That's the, and the, they're emerging out of the, let's go back to France because this is where we got the, the word and this is where the influence was extended from the idea. There are the, the legislation of 1904-05 in France was extremely complex, multi-layered, didn't all belong to a single philosophy spread over two years, but there were really three, um, three kinds of master conceptions of what laïcité was all about in that. One was a laïcité, you might say, of rejection. Religion must be rejected, it must be put in a corner, it must be restricted in its operation. It's a danger. The other was a laïcité which really was in continuity with French Gallicanism. Religion, yeah, we have to have it, but we have to have it under control. This is kind of what Napoleon did with the Concordat, right? And this kind of laïcité is akin to the laïclique of, of uh, Kemalism. In, in Turkey, the religion is really under under control. And the third kind is the kind that we were subscribing to in our report, which we call, perhaps for you know, rhetorical reasons, laïcité ouverte, open laïcité, where the major emphasis is on the neutrality of the state and the freedom of practice. Right. So, in American terms, it's you know no establishment but free exercise. And <clears throat> this is the kind of same balance. And that's, that third kind is the one that we were opting for in our report, but it's the one that was really rejected by the government. They had rather, not the Gallican one, they didn't want to control, but they wanted to repress these dangerous phenomena. So the, the law was proposing that nobody could take a job in the public sector widely conceived. That means all the schools, all the hospitals, anything that receives money from the government. All the schools, all the hospitals, the, the crash, the, you know, the, the, what do you call it, galerie, the uh, kindergartens and so on that, uh, that uh, serve young, young children, 
as well as simply the core uh, actual bureaucrats working for government ministries. This amounts to about 650,000 jobs. Uh, you see there's less than 8 million people in the population. This is a huge whack of the job market, which would have been closed to anybody who w wore these signs. The expression, I'll come back to that later, was ostentatoire, very visible signs. You're allowed to wear some tiny little uh, cross somewhere on your tie pin, but <coughs> no, nothing very big and, and visible. Now, this coding, the problem is uh, really religion, certain practices which are very dangerous in religion, and we have to therefore discourage this kind of religion by really giving people, <laughs> cutting people's opportunities if they enter society and want to go on practicing. And the minister who was leading the charge affected but it's very hard to read him. I mean, there are knaves and there are fools in this game, and you, sometimes it's hard to read it. That is, there are people who knew perfectly well this is an awful thing to do, but thought it's the best way of getting a majority and then moving on to independence. There were people who genuinely thought this was okay. But the minister said, well, we'll all agree this is perfectly reasonable. We'll explain to people why they should take off their hijabs and their so on, <clears throat> and we'll all be very happy together. So. That was the way it was presented as though it was a really minor problem. But, of course, the opposition was saying this is unconscionable. There are a lot of people that won't, <coughs> won't take off their symbols and so on. You'll have to fire whole rafts of people from the hospitals and <coughs> other parts of the, of, of the public service. Why Now, what was wrong with this coding, what, what was, we're off with this coding. And I want to mention a number of things which didn't come up in the debate, but I think we have to have in mind because they're the background of other debates. Granted that the real center of gravity of what you are against and worried about is violent practices, practices absolutely appalling to women or <clears throat> and so on, which exist in the world, and some of them exist in the Islamic world, and some of them exist in other parts of the world. Granted that this is what you were against, the, what was wrong <coughs> with the coding that the problem is laicite? Well, there are several things wrong with it. Number one, some of the worst practices, like you know, female genital mutilation or honor killing of w women, it's very dubious that they're, in what sense they're religious practices. This is a very interesting question. And what I mean to instill here is not that we see clearly what the difference is. And, no. Our concept of religion is very fuzzy and often confused. And that's not, there's nothing wrong, specifically wrong with our concept of religion in this matter. In any really important area, our key concepts are very often confused and fuzzy. But if you take something like honor killing, it is, is it Islamic? I mean, find me a mullah in Al-Azhar who will say that's, a, you know, that's required by Islam. You won't. Besides which, it happens in lots of other cultures that are not, uh, don't have an Islamic uh, religion. Right? But, in some Hindu uh, context and so on, but it's more complex than that. If you ask some of the people from the smaller villages where this grows up and is practiced, 
They don't make any distinction. They don't make any distinction between custom and religion. It's all one thing for them. So for them, they might even appear like this is a good, it's a religious act. But for, I mean, this is the, the real, one of the real dividing lines in religion throughout the last couple of millennia is that there are various <coughs> dimensions of all what we think of as great world religions which are really introduced in the axial period and those which continue and with transformation in the, in the way of life of smaller communities offering sacrifice to the gods and so on in order to achieve some kind of prosperity etc and these are, as they're lived by people in small communities, these are not distinguished. They're scholars distinguish them, but they don't. So, is this really religious? Now, the coding as religious is in some ways disaster, because what you're doing is, instead of enlisting the support of all those Muslims who find these absolutely unconscionable in an attempt to fight them, you're trying to put all of them in the same category and you're, 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 we're sending possible recruits over to the other, other side. Secondly, the, the <coughs> perception that was generated of, let's say, women wearing the hijab is that they were uh, extremist, anti-Christ, and so on, and this turns out not to be the case. I mean, many, many of them were feminists and wanted to affirm themselves, and very often they did this against their parents' desires which is something you would expect given the population of Muslims actually in Quebec. Now this may not translate into you know, comparable situation in Europe. In fact, in Canada and Quebec we have this extremely egoistic immigration policy that we don't let anybody in unless they have the masses of qualifications that we need in our economy with the result that the Muslim population of Quebec has about twice the rate of tertiary education of the population as a whole. These are more educated people than most of the people that are sitting there wondering whether they're danger. Only 60% don't practice at all. You know, another 15% do very irregularly. And this is just not a population which is likely to overlap very highly with people who kill their daughters. You know, for <clears throat> Just it's really close to, to absurd. So there's a kind of misperception there. Thirdly, of course, the attack on religion was not across the board because the government in its first redaction of the <coughs> charter proposed not to go after Catholic signs. Now there is in Quebec which we've had for the last 80 years as a result of an extremely corrupt premier trying to curry favor with the church. He had a big crucifix put over the speaker's chair in the National Assembly. And actually, our commission proposed it be taken down. This was the one recommendation on which there was no government in action. There was government action roughly 12 hours after <coughs> The government action was a unanimous vote of the National Assembly not to take the crucifix down. In other words, they acted on our recommendation by rejecting it. Right? So 
And why, well, I'll get back later on to why it's that, but you can really sense that there is in the majority population a highly complex and ambiguous relation to their past, right? So this charter was proposing that the signs of all you guys are really dangerous. But our signs is fine because, and the, the principal distinction was these are patrimonial, c'est le patrimoine, right? They, they are the heritage. These are heritage symbols, and your symbols are dangerous, right? So the vice idea, again, was not really getting to, it, was not re it wasn't really vice idea, it was a very strange kind of capto laicite, as the expression goes, or laicite pour les autres, etc. <coughs> now, why did this seem to work for a while, this very strange dangerous, I would say, clearly counterproductive coding. I mean, if you wanted to fight off certain of these dangers, you have to have, you have to recruit the vast majority of possible people who can agree with you and move on that, and it has to include the majority of all these different communities. Oh yes, there was another way in which the thing was obviously not aimed at the target, which was that this particular rule about no ostensible signs would have cut out practicing Jews with a kippah and Sikhs with a turban, right? Who nobody thought were going to set the you know, house on fire, right? So there was real lack of fit of the supposed danger and the actual coding of what the danger was and therefore what the, what the remedy was. Now, why did this work? Well, it obviously worked partly because uh, there was this, you know, the tremendous ignorance about um, about these other religions. Right? That, and you could see how this worked out when you tried to explain to people, look, these people have a different kind of religion to to yours, to the one we've had a majority here, and for them, it's important. I mean, it's really very much part of their religious practice. So they won't take the, the hijab or the, or, the, or the turban or whatever off. If you say, take it off or, or go, they, they'll go. Actually, they could go to Ontario, which is one of the situations <laughs> that doesn't exist in other immigrant societies. They can just go across. Oh, yes, and the, the sneaky Ontarians, they had a great advertisement in the newspaper from the Hospital Association a woman in hijab and it said we don't care what's on your head we care what's in it <laughs> what do you expect from them? <clears throat> so they could just go across the frontier well I explaining this to, to person after person I found the extraordinary reaction what they won't take it off they're fanatics he said just calm down it's a different kind of religion it's not really like you know, like the Catholicism, what Catholicism has become. I mean, in the old days we had lots of nuns with very visible, but today we don't have them anymore. They have great trouble getting their minds around that. And the, the government deliberately seemed to want to confuse everything together. I mean, for instance, Dreville said to the leader of the opposition, if you won't uh, work against the chador and the hijab, then how can you say that you're fighting religious extremism, anti-Christian? In other words, they were clearly 
fostering and encouraging this confusion between, um, let's say, more strict religious practice and dangerous, dangerous <coughs> behavior, right? They were really playing that up. Again, it's hard to know which of them really thought that and which of them were quite cynically encouraging that. Okay? So, but um, the in order to see why it worked, why this seemed to work with the population at a deeper level, I want to dig deeper into the, the psychology of, of Quebecers. And the, this is attempting to, to, as it were, resume some of the experience we had in our commission in 2007 and 2008. Um, yeah, there, but Perhaps first of all, I'll give another uh, another reason why this confusion worked. And these are the two things I want to talk about why it worked. I want to talk about a more general, a more general reason and a reason peculiar to Quebec. Let me, I'll take the more general reason first. The more general reason, which I think can be exported, I mean, we can take this and look to find it maybe elsewhere, is a certain kind of political correctness. It's very hard in our present situation to say, you, your culture makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't, I don't really like it, so go away or stop doing what you're doing. That's, ah, oh, this is discrimination. How can you possibly say that, right? So we can't really say that. But if we say, hey, this is part of a religious practice, which is very dangerous for our whole society, then it becomes more acceptable. But then it's also hard to say, well, the only religion that has this kind of practice is religion X, right? Well, that sounds like you're targeting. So, okay. So we're forced back on a more general uh, line in which the what's wrong with these practices is coded as dangerous religion and therefore to be proceeded against. And it has to cover the waterfront, right? So the Jewish doctor with a kippah in the Jewish general in Montreal, and I've actually no one, and the sick doctor in St. Mary's Hospital in Montreal, who's beloved by all his patients in the ICU, would have had to go to Ontario or wherever. But that is kind of collateral damage. You see, the real target is reading Islam and these practices in, in Islam. So this is a way in which the whole thing was, the, uh, the, the coding is terribly inept. But you can see why the coding can easily get forced by the demands of political correctness. And the other side too, if I want to have the right to wear what I'm wearing in this particular institution and it's against the rules, so I'm going to ask for this you know, the, the, for, uh, uh, what do you call it, reasonable accommodation. I can't ask for reasonable accommodation because I feel like that or because my mother was like that, or etc. It's much easier to ask for accommodation because I have, everyone knows I have a right to practice my religion. So both sides are forced as a way by political correctness to code this in a way which is extremely counterproductive because it makes it impossible to compromise, it, raises all sorts of, of dangers. That's one reason why this extremely inept coding 
gets traction. The other reason why, this is the particular reason why it got traction, is that, and this, I'm not sure this is peculiar to Quebec, this is what I really want you to tell me about the other countries. See, the great majority of Quebecois were, up till the 1960s, as you know, almost unanimously practicing, it was part of, right, right? And now, and then there was the breakout of 1960s, the Quiet Revolution, and that has caused, that came along with a lot of anger, particularly people of that generation active in the 1960s, you talk to them, we went around and we talked to them, and a lot of anger, you know, the, the curé forced my grandmother to have so many children, and so just real anger. At the same time, there's this great sense that, well, that's our past, that is our patrimony, our whole identity was bound up with that, we can't just dump that, even maybe a certain sense of, you know, sort of guilt of, of totally dumping that, or we're dumping part of our identity. But then more than that, there's another source of ambivalence, which is that people have what we might call occasional practice. I mean, there's nostalgic occasional practice. I mean, there are a lot of people who still practice too. I mean, it's minority, but it's not, not, not nobody. But a lot of people, you know, nobody's ever lived in Quebec, maybe we have, a uh, midnight mass, you know. <coughs> up from the choir and so all the people flock to midnight mass, right, in, at, at uh, Christmas. And then there are the rite de passage, right, I mean, the particularly marriage and particularly even more burials, right, in which the seems drawn back to church practice. So you put yourself in the position of people who if you said, well, are you really, no, I'm not an atheist, do you believe, oh, maybe I believe in God, no, are you really, well, I'm a Catholic, yeah, but right? they don't want to have to make up their minds, they're floating, it, I think this is true in lots of Western society, kind of floating in a certain range between, over that border is Richard Dawkins and so on, right, yapping, yapping, and over the other border are totally practicing people, including a minority that are very conservative practice, practitioners, that is, they're really dreaming of going back to the old days. Right? Around this population is another minority of strict laicists, people that want to go 100% for, for as it were, uh, throwing religion out. But the conservative Catholic minority and the laicist minority are two very small minorities, see? And everybody in between is sort of in a kind of interzone. How to be comfortable in this interzone? Well, kind of low-key occasional practice. And I don't try to make you feel bad because you're practicing less than me, and you don't try to make me feel bad because I'm practicing more than you. Low-key practice. You know? We're kind of in a Catholic historical society, etc. Along come these people, and wow, they look as though they're really, I mean, taking it very seriously, and their practice is so visible and so so powerful that we can't help thinking that uh, what are you? I, mean, I read I re read some of the blogosphere it is really uh, very depressing you want to cry or jump into the Lawrence River after you read it for a few hours but it really helps I remember one saying you you're saying to me I'm worthless eh? I haven't no, no faith I have nothing in my life that's what you're saying I know what you're saying that don't try to tell me you're not saying that see 
the idea that when you wear a job or you wear your Sikh wearing a turban, you're addressing kind of uh, a direct and, and as it were, gut-wrenching critique to the average Quebecer. This has got sense, or maybe it comes out, they must be proselytizing. I heard somebody in a debate the other night say, but it's clear, if somebody comes in with a hijab or a turban, they're proselytizing. They're saying to me, you should be good, I'm a Sikh, you should go. You know, he said, look, these people, they just, you know, no, they can't see that. Now you can understand why there was a kind of psychology that was set up in the majority population to buy this kind of coding because it did answer that emotional, the insecurity and the emotional sense of what are these people doing here, right? They, that sense, yeah, and as a matter of fact, an, another, another proof, if you need one, that the real fundamental phenomenon is a certain malaise, is that the word malaise was used again and again and again. Or the word déranger in French, ça me dérange, ça, or even ça dérange. In other words, not talking about who particularly was being upset, but it, it upsets. <laughs> and that, was, that came back again and again and again. I have various relatives who were very vigorous in arguments, and they said, maybe ça te dérange, it upsets you. Well, I'm not sure. Well, ça dérange mon père. There's a sense of people being upset, is upsetting. And you can see why, in this context, it is upsetting. So, really, of course, that is an impossible psychological standpoint, or as it were, starting ground, in which to integrate people. Because it really is my sensibility as an ex-Catholic or a Catholic in an ex-Catholic society, but, you know, you can become a Catholic, you can become an atheist, you can become a Muslim, you can't become an ex-Catholic. I mean, it's just... It, unfortunately, that's not the basis for <coughs> cultural integration. So, naturally, this leads to a complete... <coughs> a complete... Uh, you know, impasse. And it's that, of course, which is felt by lots and lots of immigrants, that they're being held at, at a distance or else asked to do something that, what, how could they do it? I mean, how could they become that? Which is why, although this legislation would only have attacked certain minorities, almost all the minorities felt very uncomfortable about this, right? So, the thing is, just as disastrous when you understand why, but I think it's important to understand why, that this, this psychology, this very ambivalent psychology, was part of what made it popular. And that's why, so the coding, this very inept, counterproductive, dangerous coding, as religion is a danger and laicity is the answer, doesn't only respond to the interests of the government, it doesn't only uh, respond to stupidity and non lack of knowledge about religion, it doesn't only come from uh, political correctness and the argument that forces you to put it this way, it also comes from the guts of a whole lot of people who find this. And you see, that the these are the same people that don't want the crucifix taken down, right? 
for these people, there's no problem about the contradiction. No contradiction. No, no, that, that's our that's our background, right? And this stuff is really upsetting us because we know how to relate to that background and how to relate to our past, and we've had a, we've come to terms with that. See, the really wild laicists were people from the quiet revolution period that are still grinding their teeth at the curé and they mange curé. But the majority of people today are not in that kind of situation. Now there, there's a, I don't want to leave you with this impression because there's another group of younger people who are really beyond that. It's very interesting, they're beyond fighting over the past and they're actively, many of them are actively seeking some kind of spiritual direction or meaning in life in all sorts of ways in the way that a lot of young people are elsewhere. And these people in this age cohort, there is a um, great deal of resistance to the Charter. A recent poll was produced since the election. The Parti Québécois is down to 19%. It is the fourth party among 18 to 24s. Right? There's the Liberals, there's the other party in the opposite, the CAC, there's Quebec Solidaire, and there's the Parti Québécois. Around, in that generation, this particular psychology that I've been talking about is fading, but among a great deal of the, of the electorate. Okay, so gathering all this together, what is this got to teach us? Well, can I say a few more words? Yeah, just say a few more words wildly conjectural words about other societies. I think the situation I describe in Quebec is the situation of the majority with its religious past, with its ambivalence about that, with its varying views about practice. I think something like this is true in a lot of European countries that, are, that now think of themselves officially as being very secular, in the, not secularist in the regime, but secular in their population. That is, the journalists and academics, many academics studying this, create that impression. My feeling is that you're all Québécois. <laughs> In different ways, you're all much more like the Québécois than, than that. That there is much more of this ambivalence, exactly where do we stand, much more moving back and forth, much more, therefore, wide toleration of different relationships to the traditional religion and so on, and much more sort of uncertainty moving back and forth. But also, I think you also have, like the Québécois, a sense of the deep past as being of a certain confession. Right? And that, in certain moments, is got to count. Right? It comes up to count. Right? So you get these fights in Europe between people who are like ex-Yugoslavia, I mean, where anyway the leadership there were fighting battles which had to do with ancestral allegiances, Orthodox, Catholic, Muslim, in many cases, right? and not necessarily contemporary allegiances, but ancestral allegiances, and you can whip up a lot of, a lot of uh, <coughs> fury and fight about that if these are thought to be threatened. Right? So, I think we're, just very, very quickly, I think the epoch in which we're moving in the West is, apart from the United States, which is a special case, which you can see, uh, perhaps you can see why, that 
we're moving from a lot of society, uh, in a lot of societies where the norm 100 years ago or 150 years ago was everybody, almost everybody belongs to the dominant confession. And in Quebec, this was so in spades up until 1960, to a society below the transition generations where there's tremendous variety of options people are seeking, new kinds of, of practice or new kinds of spiritual direction or new kinds of non-spiritual or etc. atheist, philosophical, Nietzsche, you know, I can't name them all. You, 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 you name it, it's all there. And, but what that is producing, that shift is leaving behind or producing as a side effect, there's two kinds of hardening. One is what the original meaning of antichrist, very conservative Catholics or, or Lutherans or whatever that want to go back to the earlier form and are very unhappy with this situation. And the other is very sometimes hard-nosed political identities around an historical, uh, purely historical connection, a kind of cultural connection to history. Jumping out of Europe, the BJP is a kind of example of this, and I, uh, I hope predictions aren't right, but <coughs> it is, is a sort of example of that kind of thing, right? Because they <coughs> run by, I mean, inspired by atheists like Savarkar, it, it does draw on mass practice to mobilize, but it's not, it's not, uh, not like, uh, you know, anti-Christ Catholics in the United States. I mean, it's not people that really believe in that. So these other, these new forms are arising, which are very confusing if you think purely in terms of these societies that were almost totally or majority one confession. The United States escapes this because it broke out of confessional unity a couple of centuries ago. But if you didn't, then you're in a situation where the understanding of where you can look for new spiritual life is generally coded as being outside religion, outside confessional religion, because what you know as confessional religion is the single large overarching thing. With time, that of course will, will fade, but in the meantime, you have a quite different attitude to being a seeker in, let's say, Western Europe than you have in the United States. But in the course of getting to perhaps a, a better, more plural, <laughs> if we ever get there, society, we have a lot of bumps on the way where there are these exclusion reactions which are fed by historic identities. You know, these religions are dangerous. Our religions are safely domesticated in the past. Anyway, that's our situation, and I'd love to hear from you whether it has anything to do with your situation. So thank you very much for <coughs>